Chapter 15 Jamie woke up with the feeling he had to do something. The mood that week was a poisonous gas he couldn't escape from. He forced himself to stop breathing. He sat up, sucking his cheeks, wanting to go purple. Anya was accusing him of stealing her stupid bear. She knew exactly where to fix her gaze, where to point the finger. Who else could have done it? You can't deny it was you, she kept saying. Give it back! That their mother should so automatically have believed Anya and not Jamie was at the root of his torment. He needed to avoid this insight, so he forced himself to hold his breath. In less than a minute, his stomach muscles began to tremble and the dizziness swam into his eyes. As he gasped for air, his heart leapt back into action. It felt like a nightmare. This business over Lizzie the Bear, still unfolding, was more distressing than anything he'd ever experienced before. Jamie had denied doing anything wrong to the point of sickness and exhaustion. The day before, his teacher had sent him to the nurse. His mother had had to fetch him from school early. Perhaps he'd read too much into her silence on the way back in the new car. Now it was the middle of the night, and he knew some kind of affirmative action was the only way to go. He sat on the edge of his bed, straining to think thoughts that felt protective. What would I want with a scruffy old bear, he thought. Anya's just misplaced it, that's all. Did anyone think of that? It might have fallen in the bin and been thrown out with the rest of the rubbish. Jamie felt more at home dissembling in this way. What's she so freaked out about? he asked himself. It's just a stupid bear. He'd tried pleading with his mother to understand his side of the story and could still hear Anya's background asides, remarks that were meant as attacks on his integrity. He could recall Anya's narrowing eyes. Sure, Jamie, she was saying, you had nothing to do with it. The bear just got up and walked out. And even then, Jamie had lied and cried and railed at his mother for her deplorable lack of trust in him, as well as for being so incredibly light on Anya. It hadn't taken long to decide what to do, but it was taking a long time to do it. Each footstep took minutes to carry out. With every creak in the floorboards, Jamie stopped dead, cursing the lonely old house they were trapped in. He waited in his pajamas until there was nothing but wall-to-wall -wall silence before continuing his journey. Anya's door was slightly ajar. When he pushed on it gently, the hinges sounded like the wail of a cat. The gap he'd made was wide enough to slip through, and it wasn't too dark, but Jamie had to wait another age before he felt able to go in. The curtains were open. There was enough moonlight over the floor and the lower part of his sister's bed for him to see everything in outline. In his imagination, the mercurial light was the cyanide they were all having to breathe. It was part of his bigger delusional suspicion that the hills either side of the village they were in had been hollowed out in order to stockpile chemical weapons. 
and they'd sprung a leak. Anya was sleeping on her side, facing the wall. Are you awake? Jamie whispered. She didn't move. She didn't turn her head or look at him. He felt his whisper break into a voice and his heart beat even faster. I was angry. That's why I did it, he said. Each increase in volume was a further dare. When he found a level he could just about tolerate, Jamie said, Actually, I don't know why I did it. It was a bad idea. It was just a game I shouldn't have been playing. Not once did Anya stir. She didn't even change the pattern of her breathing. After a long time, Jamie said, I'm sorry. He went back to his bed with the sense it had been worthwhile, even if Anya hadn't heard him speak. The important thing was that he'd managed to send a signal. In Jamie's mind, there was a rubber wall between him and his sister. It was transparent, and it could yield to pressure, but it could never be split open. He'd stretched his face into the rubber to show Anya what he could really be like. This was something so radical it could only have been attempted during the darkest moments of the night. And maybe Anya remained locked in her dreams, but Jamie snuggled under his duvet with the feeling he'd exercised a demon. He remembered it that way the following morning as he brushed his teeth. It felt like being released from a debt he couldn't afford. He brushed vigorously, he was so relieved. He expected Anya to confront him again and shout at him and bring their mother back into it. He didn't believe she'd heard what he'd confessed to her, but it wouldn't matter if she had. Either way, having done what he'd done, he felt innocent again. When Anya appeared in the bathroom, he glanced at her and froze. There were two lines of fresh blood oozing through the left arm of her school shirt. The light mood Jamie was in slipped as he asked, What's that? Some toothpaste, still frothy in his mouth, dribbled over his chin. Anya threw her left arm behind her back. It took no time at all for Jamie to feel crushed. They stared at each other. Then Anya left, grabbing her hairbrush from the shelf. She walked quickly. She was in the grips of something terrible. She didn't know why, but she felt in danger. The cuts she'd made hadn't stopped bleeding, even though she'd done this to herself much earlier on. She'd made two tiny incisions with a razor blade she'd found in her mother's wash bag. By cutting herself, Anya thought something about her life might have been eased. That was her conviction. Letting blood might be her way through all of this. Soon, she would tell her mother that she wanted to get her nose pierced. Teresa was unaware of the new tensions underway that morning. All she saw were two deadweights, shadows of themselves, moving around the kitchen like the condemned. To compensate for her children's sluggishness, she rushed everything, telling them to take the sacks off their heads, telling them to hurry. In fact, there was plenty of time. But Teresa badgered them through breakfast. She gave them mugs of milky tea with sugar and ran through checklists, all of the things to remember, as if there were a zillion things that needed to be done to prevent the collapse of law and order. She even caught herself at it, 
and turned the radio on, adjusting the tuning for the best signal. The news was in full flow. It steadied her instantly. She found herself realizing that her children's behavior had been affecting her without her being aware of it. She breathed deeply and wiped a surface with a wet cloth. She wiped the crumbs away and felt better. She understood why Anya was being so morose and believed that Jamie needed to return the bear to her with an apology as well as a promise never to remove personal belongings from anyone's room again without obtaining permission first. It was obvious that Jamie had stolen the bear, not because there was any proof. For Teresa, the proof lay more in the sounds her children were making. Anya's bitterness had been pitched too desperately to be false. Jamie's responses, his sly smiles, the way he shook his head, looking down so nobody could see in his eyes what he was really thinking, had been sure signs of his guilt. A mother can see these things, Teresa thought. Even so, she hadn't expected her son to deny what he'd done so vehemently. During breakfast, Anya snapped at Jamie again. Stop looking at me! It was hot in the kitchen, but she already had her blazer on. They'd finished eating toast with butter and honey, and it seemed Jamie was trying to stare Anya down. She said it even louder. Just stop looking at me, will you? This time it was a signal for Teresa to intervene, and she did. Leave her alone, Jamie. I'm not doing anything. You're staring at me, Anya butted in. So? Jamie swung around and gave his mother another by now well-rehearsed scowling stare. Teresa became tense again, but tried to conceal it. Just leave her be, she said. It's too early. She didn't realize how tightly she was wringing the wet cloth in her hands. Jamie threw his knife down so it clattered over his plate. What? I'm not allowed to look at her now? There's no need for that, Teresa said, squeezing hard. You'd look at her too, Jamie said, standing. If you'd seen what I've seen. Anya shot to her feet. Shut up! Dishwater dripped over Teresa's slippers. Will you both sit down? But they didn't. Jamie walked to the back door and was trying to unbolt it. Teresa yelled, Sit down! Anya marched towards the loo. As she made her way with her head hung low, Jamie opened the door and ran out. He ran straight into Rodney Figger coming through the garden gate. Rodney had scruffy jeans on. He was wearing a jacket too small for him. Portly, with plenty of curly gray hair, toned for a more youthful appearance, the heller's closest neighbor grinned now, sliding up to Jamie, getting ready to say something affable. Here's someone who's eager to start the day. Jamie didn't like the man clasping his shoulder. Now, young sir, the man was saying, always calling Jamie young sir or young squire. Is your sister coming too, or do we have to go in there and drag her out? No, she's coming, Jamie mumbled. When Rodney spotted Teresa, he let go of Jamie, bowing in her direction. And a very good day to you, madam, he called. At the kitchen door now, faking a warm smile, Teresa waved limply. Hello, Rodney. Anya's just coming. 
Never hurry a lady, Rodney chirped. You're looking delightful this morning, if I may say so. Teresa pulled her nightgown closer together. And long may it continue, Rodney chuckled, sounding, as far as Jamie was concerned, as if he was in a play about the past. I hope we've overcome the worst of the floods, Rodney was saying. Teresa thanked him. Yes, that was so good of you, and there I was, about to call a plumber. Any time you're in distress, dear lady, Rodney indicated casually towards the village. I'm only a stone's throw away. Teresa smiled. Although, of course, you needn't throw stones, the man added, winking. The telephone will suffice. For a few weeks now, Jamie and Anya had been going to school in Rodney's red Subaru. This had been one of the first of his many services to the newcomers. He drove them over the open moor, still brown from the rain in the winter. It was a roller coaster road lined with crinkled brown ferns. The road rolled on that way for miles, making the whole country seem lonely and empty. That morning, they were treated to a sunrise. It was huge and orange in the low grayness, with shredded black clouds stretching over it. Rodney talked about escaping to the sun and what wonderful bargains there were for anyone willing to shop on the internet. He kept calling it the World Wide Web. Where do you go for your holidays? he asked. Anya was sitting in front again because Jamie hadn't been brave enough to skirmish over it. He caught Rodney looking at him in the rear view and said, We went to Disneyland two years ago. Disneyland? Rodney drew the word out pleasurably. Heaven beyond, he said. It never ceases to amaze me what we can offer young fun seekers today. Which Disneyland? Anya said, Florida. She might as well have said four-wheel drive for all the enthusiasm it conveyed. Rodney found this amusing and sniggered. Poor little things, he said. They fell into a silence until Anya drew a sharp breath. What's that? She was pointing to a spot further along the road where two crows were pecking at the body of a small rodent. They hopped out of the Subaru's way as it approached. Rodney shrugged. Another little tragedy, I fear. Maybe it's still alive, Anya said, unfastening her seatbelt. I think we should take a look. Hardly about to stop, Rodney indulged her with a nod. Yes, but there isn't time. No, really, Anya said. I want to look. Normally so above it all, girl from the big city, snarling at everyone, suddenly Anya appeared to want to put everything on hold because of a dead squirrel. Rodney wondered what he might say to her if she was his daughter. He had no children of his own. He found it impossible to understand why he should stop to examine the remains of a rodent for signs of life. It's dead, he said. It might not be. Happens all the time in the country, Rodney explained. If it isn't dead yet, it soon will be. Nature will take its course, he said. Anya spoke impatiently. That's not the point. You have to stop. Jamie flopped back in his seat. In his mind, he was playing back Rodney's mixture of faces. The consternation in Rodney's eyes. The astonishment in his mouth. Rodney hit his horn. 
crows flew into the air. They flew backwards. That Rodney was actually stopping amazed Jamie no end. He couldn't get over how Anya's wish was everybody's command. As she got out, Jamie thought, she just wants to touch something dead. He thought the whole thing was stupid. But he was intrigued enough and had to look out from the back seat window. Rodney leaned over to speak through the open door. I have a bucket, he said. It's in the back. He sounded vaguely disgusted. Jamie decided to get out of the car too. As well as whatever ritual Anya was involved in, there was the sunrise demanding to be looked at. There was the dreamy, barren landscape they were in. Anya seemed to be talking to the squirrel. She'd taken off her shoe and was scraping what was left of it into Rodney's bucket. It was mostly entrails and blood-caked fur. Jamie couldn't hear what she was saying, but the sound was soothing. She carried the bucket to a gully shrouded in tall ferns. A stream nearby trickled softly through the gully. Anya tipped the bucket until every last drop fell out. A breeze caught her hair. Even as he forced himself to appear smug, Jamie thought there was something magnificent about what his sister was doing. Chapter 16 The daylight was offensive. I opened my eyes and saw the gape of the cave now burning with sunlight. I was so downcast, waking up in that stinking spot, with my suit in shreds, stiff as a plank, and the graphic feeling nails were being driven into my back. I thought I may as well order breakfast. Worth a try, I thought. Room service being what it is in so many dumps all around the planet, the worst that could happen is that it would take forever to come. I'll have buttered toast, I whispered, and get me some freshly squeezed orange juice. Bring me a pot of coffee while you're at it. My voice was so weak, the words came out garbled. There was no reply, of course. No one there straining to understand me. I could hear the birds in the valley. It was a far-away sound. They were chirping and clicking, like an old 78 of Caruso. In order to make this comparison, I figured I must have listened to an old 78 of Caruso at some point in my life. I closed my eyes and was rewarded with the illusion of pulling heavy curtains across the glare of the cave mouth. I knew I was nearly dead, lying bunched up in a corner. Suddenly I realized how hollow it was, trying to make fun of my predicament, ordering a continental breakfast. I had the tragic insight that nothing could be funny in this situation. I dared myself to move. I guessed it would be agony, and was afraid of trying. I found a way to stall getting up. Thinking about Caruso was irritating me, as if I'd overlooked something. With my croaky voice, I said the word out loud. I played with the sound, repeating it, switching the letters to coax out different combinations of sounds. I imagined somewhere in that Italian name was a mystery that would lead me to my own name. It felt as if something momentous might be about to happen, 
I didn't know what. As if a surprise party with all my friends from way back might suddenly materialize right there in the cave, and everything about me would be illuminated, and we'd all laugh about how I could have forgotten so much. If only I could pick the right sound out of the nonsense in my mind. I had my eyes shut tight, softly calling out the name Caruso. I knew all the while that I was stalling the inevitable. With some frustration, I tried pushing my body up, but my hands slid on a goat turd and every muscle ignited. I shouted as I fell back, knocking my head. The feeling of expectation and release I'd been fostering vanished. My name went too. It seemed to be there for a second, but I lost it completely in the excitement of trying to trick myself into getting up quickly. For a time I lay still, picking my nose, passing the time, until the sun, blazing further into the cave, heeding the smells, was too overpowering for me to take any longer. I got to my feet in agonizing stages, using the wall to crowd against. My bad arm had begun to throb again. It had become such a familiar pain I could talk to it. You're a shit, I said. Why don't you die? I put my jacket on and rubbed my face, a gesture reminiscent of washing before shaving. I longed to be able to shave. The stubble on my face was so thick it would soon be a beard. Everything around me seemed overworn and heavy. I felt unable to walk. The roof of the cave wasn't high enough for me to stand in. I couldn't have stood straight anyway, with such dominant fears crowding in on me, and a very rational judgment that I may soon lose the struggle to survive. On the ledge outside the cave, I was astonished how dazzling the light was. I could barely make out the forest below. It presented itself as a shaded region in the flashes of the sun. I had to squint. It was so bright I didn't think I would be able to see where I was going. Using my hands to guide myself, exploring each new foothold before committing to it, I began to feel feverish and drugged. My stomach twisted tighter with each new effort, and my mouth was sore with a rotten tang to complement the soreness. Despite all of this, I held on. I craved food and water, and the bulge of terror was still growing, but in my mind I managed to put a barricade against these elements ranged against me. I thought, if a goat can come and go from this place, so can I. The only way to make progress was with my back to the sun. I couldn't safely walk into such an intense light, let alone see my way to climbing back down that side of the mountain. My plan was to go slowly. I hoped I would be able to find a passage around the slope, so as not to have to climb. I envied the goat, practically galloping along that same ledge. As the ledge narrowed, I found I could hardly move. I couldn't see how to go on, let alone how the goat had done it. I sensed the drop would be fatal and felt new lines of sweat streaming down my neck, soaking my shirt once again. It's hard to believe, but I danced then. It started with a deep breath in, 
I sucked air into my lungs, knowing it would sustain me and believing it might even make me buoyant. Then I stretched my arms as far as they would go, stretching them all the way to my fingertips. My arms became the wings that could engage with this harsh place. I raised my right leg and arched my neck back so I could marvel at how blue the sky was. All my weight was balanced on my left leg. No thought, no reasoning behind it. A skylark fluttering high above, producing its distracted twitter, was my music. I bent my leg at the knee so I could spring forward in a dance on the edge of everything. It must also have been an act of brute defiance. Sensing how hopeless my situation was, I no longer needed to behave rationally. I exhaled and launched my body through the air. It was the most absurd and courageous act I could imagine doing. From the narrowest part of the ledge, it had almost tapered off completely there, I found myself suspended in flight. I gave myself up and tumbled into a gap in the rock face. I hadn't seen it before. It was like an alley created by the corners of two buildings. I found myself wedged into it and began talking to myself there. It was a personal gibberish mixed with whoops of celebration, my hands and arms shaking wildly. I imagined people all around patting me on the back, telling me I'd done a fantastic job. I asked for a glass of water, jogging on the spot like an athlete in training. I put my hands on my hips. I was nodding and thanking everybody. The madness didn't pass. It abated. I stopped being quite so idiotic in order to take a furtive look at my surroundings. It was a shaded place I'd landed in. High rock walls with broad green seams in it. A few more strides and I'd be onto some boulders beyond. I was still mumbling excitedly about flying through the air like a bird when I got to the boulders. As I climbed up, I saw that on the other side of the mountain, it was just the same. There was nothing but trees. The expanse before me, entirely forested, put a swift end to my happy delirium. I felt my lips turn down. The idea of walking through more of this wilderness was unbearable. What did I think of? What came to me then? Just seeing that pine-speckled panorama should have been enough to bring me to my knees. The truth is, I thought of singing. Inasmuch as everything is temporary, it all passes, my last refuge was a more total kind of insanity. I was prepared to be sane again, as soon as the opportunity arose. At that moment, though, I found the best way of dealing with my agony was to sing something light and trivial. The going was less steep on the other side of the mountain. It was cooler that side as well, provoking in me the memory of a particular song. I could even remember who the song was by, the Isley Brothers. I must have listened to it a lot at one time, I could hear a wailing guitar and a kind of oriental, clucking refrain giving the music a spacious feeling. I could hear close harmonies in the chorus and even some of the words as I made my way down the slope, fumbling almost every step, singing in a cracking falsetto, Summer breeze makes me feel fine, 
flowing through the canyons of my mind. Sometimes I sang it like that. Sometimes I added blowing through the windmills of my mind. I sang it louder and louder until my voice was all that carried me because my legs were no longer serviceable. <laughs>